Again, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 4. I'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Holy Father, let us enter this historical moment with Peter and John, the first of millions of persecutions since. Let us learn what there is to learn. Let us rejoice that to any extent any of us suffer persecution from the smallest even unto death that we ought to rejoice as Jesus said for our names are written in heaven help me unfold this passage help us see help us feel the beauty of the treasure of the gospel above all things to the glory of your name amen the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the being filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised is the difference maker in what we see in our passage this morning. Think about it. It was just 8, 10, or 12 weeks earlier that this same group 
government, religious government leadership that arrested Jesus and ran him through a trial within hours and then successfully had him executed at the hands of the Roman government. And it was all orchestrated by the high priest, his family, his party, the Sadducees, and the Jewish leadership council called the Sanhedrin. And on that very night, weeks earlier, the Apostle Peter was so afraid of what that group of religious government with the power to punish could do to him that he denied cursing that he even knew who Jesus was. And he did it three times as he stood around a fire in the courtyard of the high priest. Just weeks later, but Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus promised them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Pentecost has happened. Peter's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now he stands in front of this same council and boldly declares, Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Messiah from Nazareth, whom you, counsel, crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By Him, this man is standing before you healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no other name there is, excuse me, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven other than Jesus, given among men by which we must be saved. No wonder the next verse says, Now when they saw the boldness, of Peter. What was the difference between that and weeks earlier? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And so as persecution in our day, in our culture at large, and within the legal system is rising up more and more against we, us Christians, and against biblical Christianity. The question is, how will we boldly stand in the face of severe threats to our livelihoods, jobs, reputations? How will we stand true? To the gospel. Only by the same Holy Spirit. There is a new orthodoxy that's in town. There's a sexual revolution. It's rolling like a tidal wave over America. It is intolerant of those who believe and hold to the biblical teaching on the sanctity of human life, 
on human sexuality. It is as intolerant towards those who say, I don't believe that same-sex marriage is marriage as the Roman government was in the first couple centuries periodically when it came against Christians who refused to bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord. I cannot do that. This new orthodoxy is just as intolerant. It has no tolerance for differing viewpoints on human sexual practice on the practice of homosexuality. It has no tolerance for different viewpoints on the scientific fact and the biblical view that there are only two sexes, male and female. On the issue of transgenderism, no tolerance for a biblical Christian world view on those issues. And this new orthodoxy proclaims all religions are tolerated unless you have a religion that says yours is the only way to salvation. In other words, Christianity. This is the atmosphere that we're living in and it's growing more and more. Anti-biblical, anti-Christianity. Will you compromise? Many already have. And many, many more will. But through the centuries, beginning right here with Peter and John, many have not compromised, but they remained steadfast and faithful to the teaching, to the Gospel in the face of persecution. Back in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, periodically within the Roman Empire, persecution would arise. Like I just said, confess Caesar is Lord. Kurios. No, Jesus is Kurios and Lord. I'll be a good citizen, but I will not do that. And many were imprisoned, and some were even put to death. And in the 21st century, right now, there are Christians within America who own bakeries or freelance photographers for weddings or, or florists for weddings are being sued. Their livelihoods, their means of income is being absolutely destroyed by courts because they refuse to compromise their biblical Christian convictions by declining to participate in celebrating what the Scripture tells them not to celebrate. A fellow Christian brother in the Lord over the last couple years was chief of the fire department in Atlanta, Georgia, was fired. Why? Because he wrote a book in order to help mentor inner city young men become men. But he's a Christian. So he writes it like he should from a Christian world view. And he comes to issues of real life for young men called human sexuality. And he quotes Scripture. In his quoting of Scripture and upholding what the New Testament says on human sexuality was called inflammatory content. Lost 
his job. Al Mohler writes concerning the firing of this man, quote, Is the Bible itself now going to be defined as hate speech? Can anyone who holds to a biblical understanding of sexuality, anyone who is a member of an evangelical congregation, can they serve in this kind of political and public role? It's getting iffy. Will you stand? This historical passage that we're looking at in the book of Acts this morning of the early church is very relevant to us Christians today in this relativistic, secular, postmodern world of the new sexual morality. So, if you're there, Acts 4, remember the context. Peter and John were just used by the Lord Jesus where Jesus healed the man who had never walked. He's in his 40s now. And the man healed, goes into the temple grounds, walking. And they all knew him. They see him every day. And leaping and jumping. And he's praising God. And then the crowd gathers. And Peter preaches the Gospel. And that's what we saw last week, the sermon he preached. Then probably after Peter's main message, Peter and John with him together are probably fielding questions from the large crowd about the resurrection and the stuff that they're, they've been proclaiming. You can see this in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people. And then Luke goes on. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, that's the chief of police of the temple grounds, and the Sadducees, they came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Remember, they didn't even go into the temple until after 3 p.m., the time of prayer, and they preached, and they're talking to the people and fielding questions. It's evening. They're in jail for the night. But verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So there they are. They're in jail in the temple grounds overnight. The next day, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court consisting of 71 members. Read on, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high the high priestly family. So there's the rulers, the senior, older priest, elders, prince-like Jewish families in Jerusalem, like Ben-Hur. Okay. The scribes, these are your biblical scholars. The Apostle Paul was one of those. And Paul was probably at this council meeting with Peter. In John, 
And then, of course, the high priestly family, which wielded so much power over the whole thing, and he gives a number of the names of the family. But here's the point that Luke is making. All the top figures of official Judaism within Jerusalem are gathered to render judgment about what to do with these two apostles, these disciples of Jesus. And Luke probably got a lot of this information, these details, who's there, who's not, later on from his really good friend, Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. So what we have here is that the Jewish hierarchy, the leadership, is very upset that Peter and John in the temple are publicly telling people the Jesus we all know about that your leadership put to death. He healed this man. In fact, He is the Messiah. That's what He just said in the sermon. He is the author of life. He, in fact, is very much alive because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has raised Him from the dead. And that's why they go arrest Him. They're angry. So the next morning, the leadership with the power to punish gathered together to interrogate them. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And so Peter says, let me make sure I got the question right. He clarifies their question. Verses 8 and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. In other words, by what means this man has been healed? Got your question right? Okay. Well then, he gives an unambiguous and dangerous answer. Then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So Peter's answer starts with this offensive fact that Jesus from this lower class town of Nazareth, this little village, who was such a menace to you, the leadership here, that you had him killed on a Roman cross. He, he was the worst of criminals to you. That's the person who healed this man. The same Jesus you Put to death. And now Peter makes one of the most, historically speaking, one of the most ludicrous claims ever. Jesus healed him because God raised Jesus from the dead. 
Then in verse 11, Peter gets more confrontational with the truth by quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the leaders, which has become the cornerstone. So here's Peter. He uses a word picture, but he didn't create it. He got the word picture from the Scripture, from Psalm 118. God put the word picture there. And the word picture is essentially, this is what Peter is driving home to the entire Jewish Sanhedrin here. He is saying, look, if you compare God's building His true spiritual kingdom, you compare that to a physical building, you, the leaders, are the builders. And what you have done over the last few years, you examined a particular stone, Jesus from Nazareth, over and over, and you decided this stone is no good to build a building with. You took Him outside of Jerusalem and you threw Him away on the death hill of Golgotha. But God, the mastermind behind the spiritual building of the kingdom of God, went outside the walls of Jerusalem to find that stone laid in a tomb. And He picked Him up and made Him not just another brick in the wall, but made Him the corner stone. Literally, the head of the corner, the foundational stone of constructing his building. That's fearlessness. How? Verse 8, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said. These Jews before him, bunches of them are professional theologians. They all know Psalm 118. So what I want to do, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there for a moment. I want to read around verse 22 a little bit. You get a flow and a feel for this Scripture that Peter is using that is stunning. Psalm 118, starting with verse 19. We read, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. They know it. Peter declares before the Sanhedrin, Jesus, whom you rejected and killed, is that stone. He's the only gate 
of righteousness. And no wonder, along with Psalm 110 and a few others, Psalm 118 became a significant passage in the early church. And particularly because Jesus in his own ministry quoted it. It's in all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to read from Matthew 21 in a moment. Verses 42 to 44. But there's a context before when, what I'm going to read. Jesus tells, this is, this is only about, I don't know, 10 weeks ago at this point. This is after his last, this is during his last week in Jerusalem. Jesus tells the parable of, uh, uh, of, of the God figure who owns his, the vineyard. And he fixes it up. It's beautiful to grow grapes and make wine. And then he goes back. But he rents it out like sharecroppers. Go ahead. Make your grapes. Make your wine. And then I'll come back and collect my portion. And he says, so he sends back his servants. And they say, we don't need to pay them. And so they beat the living daylights out of one. They kill another. The God figure, the owner, I'll try it again. I'll send some more. And they killed those servants. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my own son. They won't, they won't touch him. And when the son comes to collect, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And Jesus asked the crowd, what will that landowner do to those people renting his land? And the answer was horrific. That's when you pick up. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures Psalm 118, verse 22? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus isn't done. And therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. Oh, Peter knows Psalm 118. He heard his Savior quote it, teach on it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 alludes to this very psalm, calling Jesus the cornerstone. Decades later, Peter's an older man now. He writes 1 Peter, a general epistle to the churches. And he says this in 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. For it stands in Scripture. And he quotes Isaiah 28. 
Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, and then he quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so as Jesus Himself declared that He is the stone, He is the central figure in all of human history. He is the central figure of the Lord's salvation of souls, which then leads Peter now in front of this council to the most divisive statement ever. Not just in front of the Sanhedrin, but before the culture that we find ourselves in today. Verses 11 to 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among human beings by which we must be saved. Peter was making a statement that was absolutely true. Not just for the Jews, but for every human being. When he made that statement that day, this globe was floating around in space. It was true for the Jewish leadership. It was true for all the Jews in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the diaspora. It was true for the Gentiles, the philosophical Greeks. It was true for the barbarian Germanic tribes up north, whether they knew about them or not. It was true for the Hindus in India and beyond that into China. It was true for everyone back then. And it's true today. For every soul that is alive on planet earth, whether they are secular, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, nominal Catholics, nominal Protestants, it's true. There is a God. We have all sinned and fallen short of His glory, and there is a judgment to come, and there is only one remedy. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is the person and the work of Jesus. The one who went to the cross in order to suffer the punishment for the sins of every soul who will come to faith in Him. Bank everything on His name. That's what Peter declares. 
there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need to clothe ourselves with this foundational truth, particularly in the midst of the hostile rhetoric the anti-Christian relativistic culture that is becoming part of the legal system more and more in this country. And it's all around us. There is no other name. Peter says that his focus, it's on the name. And when he says that, he doesn't merely mean, okay, yeah, Jesus is true and Everyone in the end is going to be saved because Jesus went to the cross to save them. So what do they actually know? It's Jesus who's doing it. And they remain a Buddhist or, or a Muslim or just a good neighbor who's a secularist. It doesn't matter because Jesus really saves in the end. See, that kind of doctrine's floating around in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Protestant Church. That's not what Peter means when he says the name. His point is that his fellow Jews or any non-Jews or we today are saved by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. His name is the doorway into the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God and the promise of the future that's laid up of the resurrection and to experience and share the glory of our Lord Jesus forever. To those who call upon Him. Listen to, listen to how Peter preaches in chapter 10 of Acts for a moment. To Him, all the prophets in the Scripture bear witness about Jesus. And everyone who believes in Him, that is Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. In order to believe in Jesus... To believe in His name, a person must have heard of Him. A person must know of the testimony of His close disciples and associates and apostles concerning His life in His death and His resurrection. In other words, they must know the content, essentially, of the sermon Peter just preached that got him arrested that we saw last week. You break it down, it's this. You've got to know who Jesus is, the Messiah who was promised, the very author of life, God Himself become a human being. And you've got to know what He did on the cross in His resurrection. And you've got to know, you've got to feel your own guilt and sin before the Holy God. And then... Oh, then, the offer of pure mercy and grace to you, a sinner, is a free gift that cannot ever possibly be deserved or earned. This is the gospel. Or the way the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone 
who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And oh, how blessed are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus, the church's commission. So this means that as the days grow darker and darker in our culture, the church must shine brighter and brighter with the clarity of the message of salvation in Jesus alone. Who said that? Excellent. All right. Don't be deceived. This message of salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ either makes converts or it makes enemies. It made Peter, it made the apostles, it made the early Christians enemies of the Jewish hierarchy. In our own day, where the mantra is, all paths lead to God in a great afterlife, the church needs to lovingly hold to the biblical gospel and biblical morality of right and wrong. At the core, it is this, each human being in your families, friends, workplaces around the world, in every religion, every human being must know Him and believe in the name of Jesus if they are to be saved from the penalty of their sin being born forever upon them. There is no other way. As the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 ended his sermon in front of the Greeks in Athens, he said it this way, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but not anymore. But now he commands all people, all cultures, all languages, all religions, he commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Eventually, the preaching of that gospel, the preaching that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus, it eventually got Peter killed. Early on, it got James the son of Zebedee killed. It got Stephen killed. It got Paul and 
thousands over the centuries killed. It calls for us to really know the Scripture. To really know our Bibles, to know the Gospel. To know it in the midst of whatever questions come at you. And to have courage. And that courage, it comes from verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So let's saturate ourselves ongoingly with the word of God, with truth in the midst of the culture God has put us into, and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, to the glory of His name. He has promised that I, God, who have begun a good work in every one of you believers, will complete it to the end. So go on in the midst of this culture working out your salvation with fear and with trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to work and to will according to His pleasure. He will do it. So walk with Him. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank You. Thank you for verse 8. That even ourselves, we realize that we do not have courage. I don't know if I could go through what that brother or sister did. Would I cave? Would I try to save my job? But we know we don't need to worry about that. For as you told your disciples, you will give them the courage and the words to speak when needed at the time. So day by day, Father, cause us to yearn to be strengthened by the power of your Spirit and your Holy Word in our lives as we walk in repentance, faith, trust, and bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Amen.